And welcome to episode 158 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris, and joining me is Shane. We are amateur astronomers, love looking up at the nighttime sky, and this podcast is anyone else who likes going out under the stars. How was your week, Shane? It was good. Yeah, it was a really nice week around here. We had uh, unseasonably warmer fall temperatures and some pretty clear nights. Um, so yeah, it was a really good week. Um, but first, I think I want to start off just with a, a Spotify announcement or update. Um, mm. If we have any folks that are following us on Spotify, uh, you may need to refollow the podcast to get notified of new episodes. Uh, we had an issue where a few of our episodes were not appearing on Spotify and uh, mm. through, uh, through some troubleshooting, the first path I went down didn't fix the problem, but it causes everybody to have to refollow us on Spotify. <laughs> so my apologies. Uh, the second step in the troubleshooting solved the issue and, and got the episodes, the new episodes to appear. So um, again, ap apologies for the inconvenience, but um uh, it, it only applies to the Spotify folks out there. Everybody else I think should be business as usual. Well, thanks for working through that Shane. I, I had no idea. I just saw you, you mentioned there was a bit of a Spotify issue, but, uh, yeah, thanks for, for letting me know. And thanks for letting the listeners know as well. And we all appreciate your hard work, making sure that, uh, people can actually download the podcast. <laughs> well, well, thanks. But part of that issue, part of the Spotify, well, the entire issue with Spotify was caused by me. So I, oh. <laughs> I'm very complicit in that and, uh, <laughs> you know, felt, felt I should fix my error. <laughs> Both the cause of and solution to all of our problems. Excellent. Yeah. 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 So that's, that's how you stay employed. <laughs> Good, stuff. Good stuff. Did you get any, uh, observing in? did yeah i was out uh four times um twice at night and then twice during the day um and uh you know let me start at the beginning so so monday night i was out uh, looking at jupiter and saturn and uh that was the best night of the year for me uh, in terms of seeing um for those two planets it was really good monday night um mm -hmm. so i had the bino viewer out uh, I had my uh, 76 millimeter refractor and, um, you know, like, so also what made the night amazing was, uh, IO, uh, there was a, the IO had a shadow transit and IO itself was in, uh, occultation. It was, you know, traveling in front of Jupiter. So oh, wow. not only did I watch, you know, the shadow move across, but then once IO sort of broke the limb of Jupiter, you, you could kind of see it grow some distance on the planet, which was awesome. You know, that just added to such a, an amazing night of observing, but, um, the polar regions were not just visible, but again, had some variation within them. Like you could tell that there was some darker sort of zones or patches there. Yeah. Um, the Northern equatorial band, um, you know, again, not only like tons of detail, but I could see the division within that Northern equatorial band, um, which, you know, like that's not common, especially with my little 76 millimeter. I was really impressed with that. Um, what else? The, uh, the temperate belts, the, um, uh, just the, again, the variation in the colors within the belts and they weren't just lines like they were, you know, they were jagged. They, you know, there's some festoons. It was, it was really amazing. Um, Saturn, uh, the Cassini division was very easily apparent all the way around. Um, really, really good contrast within the cloud bands on Saturn that night. Mm -hmm. 
Um, the disc shadow on the rings and the ring shadow on the disc were, were really incredible. Um, and I did experiment with a lot of different eyepieces that night in the Bino viewer. Uh, the nine millimeter, <laughs> I can't talk today, nine millimeter ortho uh, was the best combo in there. And um, I don't really know what power that turns into because with the Bino viewer, to get it to focus, there's always sort of a Barlow effect that takes place. And I'm not sure what I'm at, if it's like 1.3 times or 1.5 times, but um, the uh, the power that I was using would be, you know, greater than a typical nine millimeter ortho in that telescope. Um, what else here? Um, sort of a, a like a non-scientific comparison. I did go monovision with a five millimeter eyepiece. And I felt like that was giving me about the same magnification as the nine millimeter orthos in uh, the Bino viewer. Yep. Um, but going back and forth and I was using my five millimeter, uh, TMB super mono. So, you know, good glass. And then I would go back to the, uh, Bino viewer with the nine millimeter orthos. Um, and I felt that the shadow, uh, on the rings was more apparent with single vision, like with that five millimeter ortho. Um, but everything else. So like Cassini division, uh, variation in the cloud bands, you name it was better with the two eyes. I felt like I was just able to see better detail that way. Okay. Um, and then, you know, the other thing that's sort of a mystery uh, with the Bino viewer, uh, the time before that, when I was using it, I couldn't get uh, my 12 and a half millimeter orthos to like the image to merge. Um, but on Monday, I had no problem with that. Um, with those eyepieces. So I don't know if like the IPD setting was just right on Monday or what, but no issues merging with those eyepieces. Um, but I tried my Pentex eight and a half millimeter uh, XFs and I could not get those ones to merge on Monday, no matter what I did. So really? um, yeah, it's kind of weird, you know, and, and uh, like the, everything else, like I used a bunch of combos of eyepieces and everything merged except for those ones. So I don't know. I don't know if it was just the night or my eyes or what, but um, uh, anyway, that was a good night. Um, then I was out, ooh, what was it? Wednesday night or Thursday night? I can't remember. The seeing wasn't that great that night. Uh, so I didn't spend a lot of time on the planets. Um, but I did, you know, spend some time looking at the double cluster and uh, Malot 20 with the Bino viewer. And, you know, it, it, it was a noticeably dimmer view of all of those objects, even though I was in the city, you know, I'm not expecting a lot of, you know, amazing deep sky views, but it was noticeably dimmer even, you know, from my backyard. So I'm still curious to see what these things do under a dark sky on deep sky objects. Um, but my suspicion is, is I'll need probably more aperture, you know, a hundred millimeter or my 120 millimeter refractor would probably be the deep sky telescope with a Bino viewer. Yeah. Um, what else did two solar sessions, uh, this week, uh, back to back, um, Friday afternoon and then Saturday and man, it was incredible. The sun had these huge prominences and not, not tall, but exceptionally like wide along the disc or along the limb of Saturn or Saturn, the, the sun. And, um, you know, I would say that it was probably like this one prominence, um, gosh, it had to be, oh, I don't know. I would say 15 to 20% of, of the, like around the sun, like it was gigantic, a huge curtain. Um, 
and, and like there was about three sunspots. There was a lot of interesting surface detail. There was other prominences. Um, and what was really cool to do it like back to back, like, you know, Friday, Saturday was, um, just to see how that giant prominence changed on Saturday. And it sort of shrunk in terms of width, but grew in terms of height. And then Saturday over the course of about two hours, it just completely changed. Like it, it was like spewing kind of off to the, I guess my right, um, uh, maybe not spewing, but it was certainly like, it looked like matter was kind of projecting in that direction. And, uh, like I say, over the course of a couple of hours, it really changed its shape, which was quite neat to observe. So, mm. uh, that was neat. Um, I did try the Bino viewer with my little Lunt 35 millimeter, uh, H alpha, which, you know, is really not recommended. Um, I did, uh, when I got the Bino viewer, it came with a Coronado PST sort of Barlow that gets it to work with that particular solar telescope. Mm-hmm. Um, I was able to get it to work with mine. Um, but I tell you, hanging that kind of weight off of, uh, off of that telescope is, is kind of, I don't know. I didn't like it. Um, the, the focusing system on my little Lunt, uh, so that it uses sort of a coarse focus with the diagonal, the diagonal has a pretty long nose on it. So you, mm-hmm. you kind of move it in and out to get it close to focus. And when it's close to focus, you just lock it in with a set screw. Um, and then on top of the diagonal, like where the eyepiece holder is, that's a helical focuser. So then you just spin that to achieve your focus. Mm-hmm. Um, now the issue is that, um, it, it rotates your eyepiece. Now, when you just have one eyepiece in there, it doesn't matter. But when you have a bino viewer in there, you can't rotate it. You know, it, it just doesn't work very well because now your bino viewers sideways or something. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was able to get it to, um, to, get it pretty close to focus. Um, I could only get the 24 millimeter pan optics to work in there. And I think that has to do with how small the blocking filter is on a, on my H alpha telescope. Um, uh, but anyway, the views were pretty amazing actually with the 24 millimeter pan optic. Um, I didn't do it for very long because of all of the factors I just talked about, but it has inspired me, um, to, go down this path a little bit more to make bino viewing work with hydrogen alpha on the sun, because I, I think it will be outstanding just to, um, take in all of that detail that the sun offers. Wow. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So I think I've rambled on long enough about my observing. It was, uh, it was a really good week. I really enjoyed it. Um, how about you? Did you, uh, I think you got out a, a few times. Yeah, I get out, uh, yeah, I get out three or four times, I, I guess, uh, took uh, Thursday or Friday off work. And uh, I, I did do some work on Thursday though, although it was a, uh, that was a holiday at my workplace, but uh, there was something I, I needed to, to do with a, an outside organization. So, uh, so I had that wrapped up in the morning and then I uh, came out here and set up and had a great night Thursday night, actually um, did about three hours and then I uh, went to bed about 11.30 and woke up at 4 a.m. and did another hour on the winter sky, even though the moon was sort of just past uh, last quarter. And then Friday um, didn't really clear until about 10. And then it wasn't that clear. There were still some clouds poking around. I thought, well, it's probably not going to really clear out well until, and it wasn't supposed to clear out well until midnight or so. So I thought, well, I'm going to stay up just to view for, you know, an hour when I'm totally bagged, I'll go to bed and get up again. 
um, because the morning was looking better again. So I just uh, ended up getting up at about 4 a.m. I did a binocular session, though, on Friday evening, just looked at uh, M81 and M82 in my 7x35s, which it's, it's pretty cool to be able to see those two galaxies just in tiny handheld binoculars and you know, took a look at the double cluster and scanned around the Scutum star cloud and Taurus Poniatowski. But, you know, I probably only did maybe 15 or 20 minutes at most. And uh, like I said, I went to bed and I got up at four and it was pretty chilly um, being only one degree above zero. And it, it didn't get any colder than that. But um, I did about an hour and a quarter, maybe just a little bit longer on, on the winter sky. And by that point, you know, the moon is is still in the sky, but, um, you know, it's only, uh, you know, I guess, I don't know what, what day it's at, but it's, it's sort of well past, um, the quarter at that point. So not, not too, too bright. So, you know, you could still see M42 and M31 naked eye, but, uh, kind of going back to Thursday, um, had an email from Mary, I think in, in the States, and she was asking about Renault, uh, 18 and the spelling of it. Am I getting that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so. So, uh, so I, yeah. Sorry, I was a little slow getting getting back there. I know you, you sent me a note, but uh, I'd sort of been traveling around in transit a bit and doing some other stuff, and uh, I needed to get the proper spelling of it, which uh, I had out here, and so I wanted to wait till I till I landed here and uh, grab that and send it to her, and then I I did an observation of it. And uh, this is an asterism, Renault 18, that we talked about um, in a previous podcast, a recent podcast. And it's, uh, it's a grouping of stars near Alpha Piscium, which is basically the brightest or in amongst the brightest stars of, uh, of the, the constellation of Pisces, the fish. And it's pretty easy to find because the sort of the two brightest stars in the, the northern part pretty much point rate rate to it. And it's, it's a funny asterism because it's one of those asterisms that actually looks best in, um, in a small binocular, like 50 millimeters or less and 10 power and less than it does in, uh, like in a four inch telescope anyway, because in the four inch, it kind of just sort of blows it all apart. And when I was out here, I was kind of just looking on my phone and found a sketch somebody did in a, in an eight inch. And by the time you're in an eight inch, it's just spread out all, all over the field, even, even at, uh, at low power. So um, kind of had a look at that and then uh, took a look at uh, at the stars around Alpha Ariatus or uh, the bright star in, in Aries called Hamel. And there's uh, a really neat line of arcing stars that kind of jogs out to the east and then it arcs up and over um, Hamel, uh, kind of arcing up and into the west. And from a dark site, like it kind of looks like a fuzzy kind of arc. And when you when you look at that and you kind of look at the other side of Aries, you know, we think of Aries as as this just set of three stars and doesn't really look like much. And it's hard to imagine like a ram there. But if you kind of think about um, the ram being in a certain profile position with those two horns and and the bright horn is kind of facing you and maybe the other horn is sort of uh, a bit obscured and sort of turned away from you and you're just sort of getting like a bit of a shadow of that and kind of, this is, this is what that other side uh, sort of, sort of looks like, kind of looks like a bit of Milky Way. Like it's just sort of um, like a, like a fuzzy sort of misty kind of area that's on the other side of, of the bright star in, uh, 
in Aries. And that's one of my favorite sort of asterisms that isn't in a star atlas or, or any kind of, you know, star chart that I've ever seen anyway, but it's mentioned like an old text and that sort of thing. But again, it's really beautiful to look at in just seven by 35 binoculars and in the four inch at, uh, at 19 power, even my lowest power, um, that, that asterism kind of fills the whole field of view. So if anybody's using anything larger than that at all, then you're probably not going to, well, you're not going to see the whole thing. And even in the four inch, it kind of sort of starts to lose its magic because you're, uh, you're just, you know, stretching those stars uh, apart. And it just kind of looks like you're looking at like a lot of stars in the field, but you just barely with a, with a three and a half degree field of view, you can get them in, but probably really like something like an 80 millimeter F5 would probably be about the largest instrument to look at it. And it looks awesome through binoculars. It's really a binocular uh, asterism. Do you ever, do you ever look at that? Do you ever see that? Yeah. Yeah. One night when we were in grasslands, we were looking at that. It's uh, it's neat. Yeah. Like it's a uh, part of the sky that I largely ignore. <laughs> and, um, you know, interesting point too, just about binoculars again, you and I, I think really try to drive this home that, um, a telescope and a bigger telescope don't always provide a better view. It really depends on the objects you're looking at. And, and some objects just don't look good in a telescope or you you're not able to appreciate all of the beauty of the object, um, in some telescopes. And, you know, that's a great example of an object that just binoculars really make it uh, shine. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of neat. I, I kind of had, had sort of stumbled across this just as I was reading some texts and kind of like you, you had mentioned, it's an area of the sky that I typically ignored because there really isn't much there. Mm-hmm. Somebody says, you know, you you know, the only thing to observe in Aries is like those three stars and that pattern. And maybe there's some faint galaxies or something somewhere. But uh, anyway, uh, it, it's kind of a neat thing to see just because it's so easy to see. I think it's kind of a neat thing to look at. And, uh, and you know, it's something that that is generally uh, ignored. So, so pretty cool. Um, let's see what else I look at. I looked at quite a bit. I spent a long time looking at M31 through the four inch. Um and I looked at the satellite galaxies uh, put in 60 power and kind of just panned around uh, the telescope using uh, using 60 power uh, in my four inch uh, telescope. And, you know, you can see quite a bit uh, at 60 power, uh, you know, from a from a dark site on on M31. Have you, you you've spent quite a bit of time on M31, I think. Yeah, I have with, with all apertures ranging from 50 millimeters up to uh, 12 inches and each telescope really shows that object differently. And, and again, not, I don't know if I would say any one view is better than the other. They're just all very different. And, um, I, I may, you know, maybe my favorite view ever was in my eight inch daub. Um, that was sort of the perfect blend between, uh, wide, uh, you know, wide enough field of view that you got the majority of the visual parts of that galaxy in, but enough aperture where you could really see the dust lane within the galaxy and have it sort of take on some of that structure or, or appearance that you're used to seeing in photographs. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I I really like the four inch. I find that this four inch, um, it's really good at showing very. Um, Subtle detail, I guess, is the way to <clears throat> way to you know sort of frame it, because you know it's it's a smaller telescope than other instruments I've I've owned and used. I've had eight inch telescopes, I've had six inch telescopes, and and I have a really good five inch refractor. But this four inch, I find for whatever reason, it's really good at 
for example, revealing those those faint outer regions of uh, of the Andromeda galaxy. Like I, I just feel like I can trace it out so far in that instrument, and you can still see it. And then uh, as well, just like panning around overhead, like I feel like I can just see like very fine, delicate detail, um, like in in dark nebulas and star clouds, and those type type of objects. But uh, it was pretty cool. <clears throat> my uh, my wife came up and she had a she had a long look at Andromeda with me just just while I had it um, there, and then uh, did the same thing on M thirteen. Spent some time looking at that. I think I put in like about one hundred and thirty power. Spent a while looking at it uh, at one hundred and thirty power. You know, I I just really like to you know just apply some power to it. And I just sat there and kind of looked at the stars. Like you definitely are getting some pretty decent resolution even in the four inch um at 130 power on on m13 which is uh the big globular uh, cluster up in uh up in the constellation of hercules and then so i don't know if you recall but i was reading and and continue to read the uh the caldwell objects by stephen o'meara mm-hmm. so i decided you know it was it was a good night i really didn't have that much of a plan because kind of ended up out here and i sort of had sort of quote-unquote plan to observe but not plan my observing and uh, just kind of still really enjoying kind of getting, getting used to it out here and, and the novelty of just being able to basically, uh, you know, walk up that cactus hill and, and, you know, be able to be under a sixth magnitude uh, sky in, in less than 30 seconds is, is a pretty awesome novelty. Yeah, um, for sure. And I feel pretty fortunate to, to have that, but uh, you know, open to sharing with anybody that wants to go and observe. Um so I, I'd been reading uh, the Caldwell book by Stephen James O'Meara. Uh, I think it's called Observing Caldwell Objects or the Caldwell Objects, part of his Deep Sky Companion series. And I decided to kind of sort of pick an object at random, um, which was Caldwell 3 or NGC 4236. Did you ever look at that one? I don't think so, no. <laughs> I don't think I ever looked at that one either. And, and so I... Uh, I, I looked in his book and then I had, I think I had a star chart. I think I ended up putting the star chart up with me. Maybe I just used his book and I kind of hunted it up and um, ooh, there's a bird. It's picking at our bobbly head. <laughs> All right. That's very distracting. Right in front of me, there's a bird. You can hear it. I think it's a chickadee. I'm not a, you know, bird watcher, but uh, pretty sure that's what it is. Okay. Back to the podcast. And, uh, so anyway, I decided sort of and kind of pick this at random and uh, oh, I was, I was looking at it and I was like thinking, geez, this is pretty big. I, this can't be it. It just must be sort of a brightening. And I kind of noticed, you know, you know, as you sweep the sky and I don't know whether it's just in small telescopes or what, but it seems like in the small telescopes, it seems like you'll kind of see these sort of faint brightenings in areas. And I don't know whether they're just chance alignments of stars or, you know, just your eye or like, you know, just like maybe high up clouds that are moving by and kind of spent about 10 minutes on this. And, you know, I could, what I could find is that it was a pretty big bright patch next to these uh, three stars actually that looked like uh, sort of a vertical line of Aries, at least, at least at the time I was looking at them. And, uh, and this thing stretched, you know, about two thirds the distance amongst these stars, even, you know, using relatively low power. I was like, man, that's pretty big. It's just going to be brightening in the in the sky and whatever. And then uh, the next day, when I kind of took the book out again and read the description, um, 
Amira like described exactly what I saw, which is that if you look directly at it, you wouldn't see it. And it just like with averted visioning, it was just basically a brightening in the sky. You really couldn't see. Uh, you, you, he found it very difficult and said it basically it's one of the more difficult or the most difficult uh, Caldwell objects that he observed. So I'm like, okay, well that, that sounds about right. That's, but that's pretty cool because I think he was observing, you know, under the Hawaiian skies and at 4,000 feet or something like that. And, um, you know, very dark location and, and where I am, I call this like the reasonably dark sky. It's, it's a sixth magnitude sky, but um, you know, it's not spectacularly dark here. It's just, it's just really good and dark for being uh, in a, in a populated zone. Right. So, mm-hmm. so anyway, that was, that was sort of my uh, object that I, that I hadn't observed before. Every, every time I come out, whenever I'm observing or doing a, a run of a few days, I like to try to look at something maybe I haven't seen before. And so that was, that was my new object. I want to try it again though. It wasn't that high when I observed it. it wasn't super high in the sky on, on Thursday. Um, let's see in the morning. So I spent a long time looking at, uh, M42 again with, uh, 40 power, 20 power. And then again with, uh, something like, uh, 60 power. And here's the bird again. You can hear him cracking, clacking away. Okay. That's very distracting. And then, um, yeah, I looked at some of the surrounding nebulosity there. Um, which was pretty neat. The, uh, the, the thing though, the moon was still up and kind of interfering with my views, uh, a little bit. So that was unfortunate. And I went up into Cephas and I could see there was like this bright star cloud up there that, uh, it's like very concentrated. I thought it might be that Trumpler portion of IC 1396, which is a huge, uh, nebula and star, star cluster, um, but unfortunately, you know, that moon up, I think it was, it was washing out any of the nebulosity. So kind of need to, uh, I was kind of hoping this morning might be clear because I think it probably would have been dark enough by now to, to see if it was the nebula and the star cluster I was looking at. But yeah, it was, it was sort of in, in the right spot. And that's, I don't know if you've ever looked at that Trumpler star cluster in IC 1396, but it's, uh, it's just like this perfect little circle of, it just looks like a star cloud but it's just a perfect little circle. It's just, uh, just so neat. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if I have looked at that. I don't think so. Have to, yeah. I'll have to show it to you. Cause even under, even under some light, like even with the moon up, you know, it was probably like, uh, not six magnitude. It was probably like five and a half for give or take magnitude. So not like super, super dark. And it was, it was, you know, very apparent. Very, very apparent. I feel like maybe, maybe from the city on a really good night without them enough, you you could probably get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, the aurora. I, I was interested to hear about your uh, solar observing because uh, I'd seen some pretty significant aurora, especially on Friday morning. It was so bright in the northwest. It was just like I mean, it was bright um, even with uh, the moon just past uh, last quarter. Um, and so I don't know if, if that might be associated with the solar activity you were looking at or not. Maybe, maybe you can tell me. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know about that. Um, like for, for, um, for, for any of the activity on the sun to influence our atmosphere and cause Aurora, like it would have to be pretty much straight on. And the stuff that I see on the limb, you know, is going out to all different points of space, but none of it towards us. Hmm. So I don't think so. And then, you know, there's also a bit of a delay there for that stuff to travel to earth and, and sometimes it's days. Um, so it's yeah. hard to, it's hard to say, right. But I, I, you know, I don't think that I saw 
anything in my observations that would cause that, but not to say it didn't happen at that point too, I suppose. I guess if it's active, then, you know, we are going to be getting some um, aurora activity just like in, in general. And it was really like, there wasn't any, any detail to it. It was just like this huge bright glow on the Northwestern horizon um, that would kind of rise up and then fall down a little bit, but uh, it was very bright. And then on, um, I guess yesterday morning, I got up uh, again and did a longer session and the aurora wasn't as bright, but I could see like some pillars and curtains in the same uh, area from, from time to time. So, um, you know, that, that was different, not nearly as bright, but, uh, mm-hmm. but a fair, fair bit of detail uh, there as well. So I know some people get really excited about the aurora. <laughs> I can't say I'm in that camp, unfortunately. It's, it's sort of neat to see. Um, and if you get a really awesome display, that's super cool. And I've seen a few of those, mm-hmm. um, but uh, in general, they, they can kind of interfere with our observing, especially when they're just really on the horizon, like they were last, you know, the past couple mornings, you're not really seeing much in the way of detail, but they, uh, the sky is, is a little bit brighter than it would otherwise uh, be, unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of a, it's a double-edged sword. You know, the Aurora can be quite pretty and beautiful and and it's neat to see, but you know, if you are intent on a dark sky observing session, they become annoying because it really, it washes out the sky. It almost, you know, we've been out in, in grasslands sometimes where, you know, you're, we're, we're much further South than where we normally observe. And the further South you go, Aurora becomes less and less likely, but you know, we've been out at grasslands on a new moon night when the Aurora comes and there might as well be a full moon in the sky because it just, it's so bright. It washes everything out. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's, uh, yeah, it can be kind of, it can be kind of annoying. Unfortunately, I know some people get really excited about it, but, uh, I just can't, I just can't just not my, just not my thing. Um, if we do have a really, really bright one, I've, I've seen a few where it's been like right overhead and red and mm-hmm. orange and stuff like that or whatever yellows i guess is even more than orange um that could be yeah that can be pretty cool i think so, we, yeah, just, so that, we, we kind of take it for granted because we see it so often because we just live in a favorable latitude to see it but um you know i think that's why a lot of people maybe don't uh don't share the same opinion as us on, <laughs> yeah on the aurora so yeah like i used to see it back home and it would just be like postage stamp size like you know, you could actually like take your binoculars and look at it to try to magnify it because it would be like, I don't know, maybe it would be five or six degrees across the horizon. Like if, if the atmospheric conditions were just right and you were in this, this good spot, especially down um, uh, the bay, which is on the ocean where, where uh, my folks live, there was a spot I could get into and I, and I could see it because you're sort of on a bit of a hill and then you were kind of looking down towards the north uh, or northwest and uh, it was really cool. I remember one night looking at it and it was just like, like, I feel like it was postage stamp size, but you know, it had like the curtains and you kind of see them moving in that through the binoculars and that. Um, and I always thought that was kind of like my favorite Aurora because it didn't impact the observing at all, but you could still see all this detail in it. I thought that was kind of, kind of neat. Yeah, that seems pretty cool. <laughs> all right. Uh, do we have time to read that uh, email from Bill? Uh, let me just take a quick look. We are 31 minutes. Go for it. Yeah. yeah. Do you want to read it? I mean, I talked there for two Yeah, minutes. yeah, sure. Um, yeah, go for it. 
so uh, uh, Bill Weir, who was on the podcast a little while ago um, from uh, British Columbia, sent us an e email, um, and it is pretty cool, um, about comets. So, uh, hey guys, uh, I can't remember from your episode in October objects, but was this conjunction on your list? Um, and he's talking about, uh, a 67 P Shrimov hyphen. Oh, gee, uh, Garris. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so anyway, Bill was uh, chopping firewood, so he missed some of the segments. But on October 16th, early morning, 67P Chermov hyphen Gerasmenko will skim the edge of M35. Um, so the best time for, well, the West Coast of Canada, I guess probably West Coast of North America, um, excluding maybe Mexico, uh, uh, would be about 3 a.m. it looks like, uh, because the moon will have set and Gemini will be high enough in the sky. Um, so I think this comet is around magnitude nine and a half, if I remember correctly. So you certainly will need a telescope for that. Um, and then Bill goes on to say, I know you like using uh, Seichi's website, but I find Skyhound's comet chasing site better for charts. Uh, so the, the uh, URL is cometchasing.skyhound.com. And um, it, it has a like kind of a monthly list of all the comets to be aware of, but he organizes them by um, aperture, which is pretty cool. So like, you know, it'll start off with some of the brightest comets and, you know, the recommended aperture and then keep going. And then there's links for finder charts and all sorts of uh, additional detail. Back to Bill's email. Um, so funnily, fun, yeah, funnily enough, it was mid September, 2018, that a different comet, uh, 21P, uh, Jacobini dash or hyphen Zinner cruised right through the same cluster. Uh, sadly that one was so low, uh, to the East, it was over the lights of Victoria. So while I could make out the comet, uh, or while I could make out the comet, the cluster was so poor, I could really only tell it was M35 because of that nice arcing uh, chain of stars on its northern side. Uh, just thought I'd mention this because comet conjunctions with deep sky objects are one of my favorite things to observe. Uh, if the weather is good, I'll have out my 20 inch for this one. Uh, this is another reason I like Skyhound charts uh, because the DSOs are listed on them, making these conjunctions apparent. Uh, still enjoying the podcast despite the sound issues. Uh, I get them as recently, uh, or I get them as recently. We were at a place where Wi-Fi was terrible. It made me almost get Starlink. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching the Starlink satellites the other morning. It's no, geez, I haven't seen them yet. Yeah, well, I mean, they're not that bright, really. Some sometimes you'll see some bright satellites, but I, I don't think those are the Starlink ones. But uh, but here, yeah, I'm pretty sure the ones I was seeing when I was looking at that uh, open cluster, I think it's the Trumpler uh, section of IC1396. And like like every 90 seconds, <laughs> I know I was looking at it for 900 seconds because I saw 10 satellites go by. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Hey, you know, speaking speaking of satellites, um, I don't know if you had a chance to listen to Phil's email. Um, he He's talking about sort of training to see the ISS and manually track it through his eight inch daub that he has uh, recently acquired. Yeah. And um, what was pretty interesting is um, 
I don't know if he read it or was talking to somebody, but he got advice that um, the way to prepare to like hand track the ISS is to uh, just hand track like high altitude jets flying by. It's about the same speed, you know, going through the sky. So if you can, you know, follow a jet, you'll be able to follow the space station and sort of develop that little bit of muscle memory in terms of, you know, how much nudging you would have to do on the telescope. Um, so I thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, although the other thing is that I think Phil is going to use like 200 times, uh, like a five millimeter eyepiece, which mm. I think that's going to be pretty tough. Um, and I, you know, I, I've, I've looked at the space station with like my, my lowest power eyepiece and you can still see some of the structure and detail within it. So I would prefer a, like as wide a field of view as possible because, you know, that'll help you to keep it in the field of view a lot easier, but um, you know, it's kind of an interesting little project, you know, to try to observe, uh, the space station as it transits overhead, because it is a neat object to see. And, and you can see some of the, the detail or like the structure of that physical object, which is pretty cool. Hmm. Yeah. Be, be careful pointing anything at a plane though. And, uh, no lasers, <laughs> no lasers. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just optics. <laughs> I always think of, uh, yeah, the optics are very far with that. Um, yeah, I always think of, uh, there was an observer, I forget who it was, somebody I observed with quite a few times, it, it, or, or talked to quite a few times anyway, it could have even been Bill or somebody, um, and they, they were at a, they were either working at or near um, a military base, uh, like an airport, I feel like it was the person who was working there on contract or something, and for whatever reason, they, they had tried observing there, um, for whatever reason, and uh, the spot they picked wasn't that good. And they could see that there was this really dark spot, you know, over like on the far side of the runway or something. So they took their Dobsonian over there and they had it set up. And I guess the uh, military police showed up. They thought they had a cannon. <laughs> oh, <geez>. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, they were told to move. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, can, I can understand why. <laughs> so anyway. That's cool. Yeah, that's that's a, a neat resource from Bill. I'd totally forgotten about Skyhound. And I Skyhound makes uh, pretty good software for Windows computers. I actually have a copy of it uh, called Sky Tools. And uh, yeah, I used to use the website all the time. I just had totally forgotten about it. So thanks to Bill for bringing that back to, uh, to our attention. Um, yeah, very cool. Very cool. Anything else to, uh, to add, Shane? No, that's everything, Chris. Yeah, my hopefully the sound is a little better. Um, we talked about me getting a mic. I said I wasn't going to bring a mic out here, and then I end up getting uh, something that has a mic on. I got a, a new a little mic, I guess is the way to put it. So I attached that um, to this machine today. Maybe that will help uh, a little bit. But I think uh, I think this might be the last one I record from out here. Although uh, hard to say, I might do one more, and then uh, and then just be recording in my home studio from now on. So hopefully the sound quality improves. I know a couple of people have mentioned the, the sound quality and yeah, that's, that's all on my end. I'm just recording from my hotspot and uh, you know, I, I know somebody kindly made some great recommendations of plugging directly into my router and doing other few things. I'm like, there's no router here. There's, there's, there's <laughs> yeah, I've got, I've got nothing. I can, there's a cell tower that I can't see line of sight. I'm really glad because it has a, has a spot, not a spotlight on it, one of those flashing orange lights. And I'm glad I can't see it from here. But um, the downside, of course, is uh, while my observing is better, um, my Wi Fi connectivity uh, is non existent almost. So, anyway, that's, that's my story of woe. So, with that, 
I'll thank you for listening and thank you for joining me, Shane. Thank you everyone for listening and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>